Hello, Internet. You are now experiencing technical difficulties. This is Greg, and I'm joined by Ben. And once again, we're doing another episode of Table Chatter. And today we have a special guest in the form of friend of the podcast, Tara. Hi, I'm a ghost. I'm alive again. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and uh, Tara, we wanted to talk with Tara because uh, she's doing some very fascinating work in her graduate program. And obviously, me being a lowly lowly bachelor student i know <laughs> not so sh- you don't need to be sh- you don't need to be ashamed greg it's fine <laughs> so uh but ben obviously has a lot more experience in much higher levels of education than i uh, so yeah. uh hopefully get some good insights today but uh mm-hmm. as we always want hopefully. to start uh And I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but uh, how exactly did you get into gaming, Tara? Uh, Specifically for tabletops takes a bit to get into, as with everything in my life. I've been playing video games since my first memories. I remember playing Duck Hunt at my grandmother's house in North Carolina. Um, And specifically remember beating Final Fantasy 4 and 6 on the SNS when I was 6 and 7. And playing basically every single art role-playing game, action RPG you could think of between then and when I went to college. I went to college and I continued to play games, but I definitely wanted more as they were becoming not as story-focused as I wanted to. And I'd heard about D&D and I'd heard about tabletops, but that was through my ultra-religious uh, high school daycare Come whatever the heck that place is that I grew up. And that kind of pushed me off. And then I started hearing a little bit more about it in undergrad. And about 2008, 2010, I finally decided to start listening to some games because I was just very interested. And I picked up RPPR and I started listening to what they made. And I enjoyed the table chatter, the camaraderie, the, the range of stories, the range of emotions, the range of unpredictability that came out of it. Then I started listening to The Drunk and the Ugly and kind of fell in love with them and started listening as the stakes of those games are vastly different from RPPR and are more personal, personally focused. And they kind of set the route for where my research comes and where I view tabletops on top of a number of other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly been a long road and uh, definitely glad to have you as part of the community. So it's been was... it's been a joy to actually play with everybody, and since I've become the mercenary when I have times, it's it's really interesting to see the number of different people and play styles that can leak out and how they merge and make new patterns. Yeah, I um, I I like completely agree. I think there's uh, I think like it's like there's very few things like it. Like it, it's just such a unique medium, and it's. Um, and I think like, I, I re- like I got in, into it in high school with, you know, like friend talked about D and D I wanted to play and then it, uh, you know, <laughs> everything changed. Um, <laughs> and like, especially, uh, one of the things and I like, even I also wrote undergrad essays, um, about it, uh, to where like one of the last college essays I wrote or undergrad essays that I wrote as part of my uh, English degree. Um, was that uh, I did a Zizekian uh, esque critical analysis of unknown armies, um, 
and yeah like it's 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 uh i think like the the relation the player creator and like audience relationship uh in like a tabletop game is just there's nothing like it um yeah at some point Obviously, somebody smarter than me. It would be really fascinating to kind of do like a deep dive on like Ross's effect onto at least our little section of reality. Like, mm-hmm. I routinely talk about and- the genealogy of Ross's game and genealogy of your game and the genealogy of the DNU and its slow spreading effect. Because I, honest, quite honestly, Ross seems and the rppr crew have such a strong at least in my mind representation of the indie crowd and Mm -hmm. their Mm -hmm. disbursement of influence is minuscule in comparison to some of the more mainstream DD adjacent podcasts but if you are within you know a tiny fish feels a small wake bigger than a big fish and as new individuals and as the indie crowd is just so dispersed and made up of small things that the power of RPPR and its lasting influence is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I was doing some research for our podcast and just like realized like I've only been in this community for like six years yet. It feels like it's been an eternity. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, just very grateful for it. So obviously you have a huge amount of passion for gaming. So, uh, how did that make you want to pursue it from an academic sense? So this, a lot of my work is very personal. So some of the heavy, some heavy topics might come out um, specifically mm-hmm. just a warning now and a content warning for the future. I am from a highly abusive background and it, I have been homeless and I am trans. I am non-binary. I am ace. I have a lot of labels that I've discovered about myself in the last two years that mm. help inform this. Um, the, the experience of tabletops I've seen through Ross and through my own personal experiences are super different from what academia does. Academics see tabletops as this land to extract information on improv and AI. It's a place that you study the GM or the players to create better AIs for co-creativity but they never look at it as its own medium. It is a space to be extracted from because mm. it is traditionally viewed as subservient to video games, which it feeds off of, or AI. Uh, but to me, uh, tabletops are a source of therapy and social engagement. And there are studies done of D&D for therapy, specifically for some uh, mentally ill children, using that to help with psychosocial institutes. But there's nothing in the digital realm, specifically digital media, where I sit that that does this. So the pursuit is my pursuit is to move digital media to a standalone position and out of the shadow of improv and AI into its own consideration, specifically because it is the parent of video games. It is the analog merger of the digital and the analog realms. It is all of these aspects of Janet Murray, my advisor's work, made into a physical analog experience that she often describes as incapable of being done in an analog experience. So it is this unique medium that helps blend the worlds and showcase kind of the a wide spectrum of futures of how we can look to the analog to inform the digital or look to the digital to inform the analog in ways we weren't able to consider. 
Okay. Um, and how do you like place tabletop um, in this kind of like, uh, you know, Hamlet in the holodeck uh, space, which is Janet Murray's for those who don't know, Janet Murray's going to seminal work. I, I listened to some of her lectures. Um, so like, how do you place uh, kind of tabletop role-playing games as like a system in kind of this space then? Um, it's funny. I've known Janet for about, Oh gosh, going on five or six years. Um, and there's this one thing she's very humorous about is that the holodeck isn't real. Yes. And it's not that the holodeck isn't real or that it can't be. It's that every new technology is a holodeck. And the goal is not, we will never reach that point, but we will always make steps forward. It is the carrot at the end of the rope of what we go for. Mm-hmm. And where I sit is that if we want to think of it as a holodeck, it is an analog holodeck. It is one that cannot that can get as close as possible to the holodeck idea of Janet, but at the same time, it's not digital. So it inevitably defies distinction because at a certain point, it just remains theater where the holodeck becomes a lived environment experience that encapsulates the individual, the user's senses, instead of just this aspect of play. Fascinating. Um, I think also, um, and especially since I like, uh, when I read your like, um, uh, master's thesis, um, where you kind of like talk a little bit about, uh, issues with like, uh, in digital design and kind of like what in the tabletop space can be kind of what, what like digital games, um, and digital interactive systems can learn from the tabletop. And like, you make a, a relation to like, which I, I guess like I never really thought about, but, uh, uh, relation to like uh, that, like the art of GMing is like very similar to like or like oral traditions, where there's not like a like there's not a lot of rule books, and like whenever people learn GMing, it's mostly through like being mentored under someone else and being kind of in the space and kind of picking up on everything. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a chapter coming out for MIT Press, hopefully, fingers crossed, that I just finished a draft of a week before my quals. So, you know, I've been running the midnight oil for like a month now. Oh yeah. Um, it is an attempt. It is a transmedia book where we are attempting to redefine transmedia because it's just become a bush of, a bush of weeds based on the original Jenkins concept and Janet's mm-hmm. concept too. But I did not talk about Janet in my paper. What my paper deals with is a attempt to, it gets to the core of the concept of rotating GMs, which everyone here is familiar with at some label or point, but is not known to the wider academic world and viewing it as this idea of radical freedom and creation. Now, the use in that chapter is to showcase how rotating GMs can help uh, recognize and extract an intrusion of capitalistic creation concepts into transmedia. But I still think of that rotating gm of how the basis of tabletops is while there might be one person who is constantly working and making a thing presenting a product presenting an experience never a product there are still two to five other people sitting there playing that are learning that are working together and by shifting the focus from a single individual who controls everything to a collaborative experience among equals 
a lot of the ideas of social engagement and therapy and the attempts to better the uh, the medium forefront because it's not about the AI working with a person at that point if you extract it the digital media it is about the AI and the person working together and overcoming leaps and holes to bridge together instead of one leading the other or the other leading the next Yes. Um, And it's also, uh, as you kind of talk about in your master's thesis, it's also about showing that the the rules of the game itself are uh, optional. Yes. So can you talk about your design agency? And that design agency is actually a big part of my dissertation, which we might get into later. The idea of transgressive narratives, which involves tabletop, transmedia, remediation, and willful breaking and bending of rules to understand underlying narrative systems. Because mm-hmm. like as a, uh, like, I guess I like to kind of bring it back down to like the, you know, like normal experience of, because uh, just so I can like define terms a little bit um, for the listeners who haven't read your stuff. Um, you know, like we as GMs, like, you know, we know like house rules are kind of the the name the name of the game in in role playing games, and like you know, you learn to ignore ignore rules or like bend them in certain ways to be able to, you know, to make a fulfilling narrative. Or because like I don't want to deal with encumbrance rules. That's dumb. I, that's a, that's way too much paperwork for me because I'm uh, a lazy as a GM. Um, and that's that that idea of like. In the in the notion of games, that idea that like rules are kind of optional or even like uh, really more socially contract things or socially contracted guidelines that are subject to change with like you know uh, consensual change obviously um, between everyone um, is again like a really unique feature of them. Yeah, and that's the big difference that is important to understand between, or I, I conceptualize between analog and digital as well. Tabletops rely on this, one of Janet's affordances, procedural rhetoric, i.e. the rules that run the system. Some of those rules can get changed or yeeted out of the entire conversation or stitched in to change the concept. And that's an insanely powerful tool that needs to be recognized. Yeah. Like for us, like I'm drawn back to like the work we did with um, Enigma and White in Lovecraftian Narrator, because that ended up being a shared narrative that we all worked on together. And even just at one page, we might not have necessarily followed the rules to a T, but in sharing that quote GMness of it, because we were all doing our own story, it crafted a narrative that we couldn't really do in any other medium. Exactly. And then, you know, my loving addition of just the curveball out of right field that felt like it would help stitch everything together in this very Lovecraftian way that probably wouldn't have worked in a digital realm because it's it was both tangentially related and could be woven in, but was not within the defined narrative parameters as established by the previous individuals. Mm -hmm. That was what that was a lot of fun. being in part of that topic and uh, or being a part of that project and seeing everyone kind of come together, come after. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff you can do that you can't really do elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So obvious. So again, me being from an undergrad world, uh, was there a lot of work that you did in undergrad to kind of scaffold to where you got into masters and then where you've got into doctoral work? Ooh, yes. Um, the biggest one that helped with my tabletop role playing games is my longtime mentor and dissertation committee member, uh, Lisa Yazik. She is a science fiction researcher. I took her as a sophomore, which is very rare because usually uh, only seniors take her class. And from there went wild. It was the language of science fiction, the history of science fiction. And from there, it was one of those I. Uh, learn that you could enjoy your job and do very interesting researches. Um, so very quickly after, ta- oh, yeah. yeah, apparently, um, after taking her class, I joined in on the radio show. It was a monthly radio show, and then I took over as host and made it weekly. And then I took over and recorded it and transitioned it into a podcast and helped her establish a symposium of science fiction in the Atlanta area. Well, a year or two later. I don't remember anything of that, but she claims that I did. But, you know, my memory is a little shot. <clears throat> right, right. But a lot of my work ends up basing itself and utilizing the rules of science fiction, the idea of a nova, a thing that changes the world. And as that changes the world, how it filters through the internalized world built of it. So the, uh, the Lovecraftian narrator, for instance, the novum of that was the paintings, was this ability to do art. How does that change things? Well, if it's art, there's an artist. Even if it's a doorway, someone has to etch it, make it, or weather it away, Mm -hmm. which is where the idea of this final character I made came in of, this is an older artist or the other one for a door, if we want to share that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Darko Suvin, if you're very interested in him, is the basis of this concept, the metamorphosis of science fiction. He talks about science fiction as having two key points to it, the idea of a novum, a thing that changes the world, and the cognitive dissonance, a thing that as you're experiencing it, you realize this is not my own world, and the building of cognitive dissonance helps define science fiction. And understanding that helps with the horror social ideas that I like to stitch into my tabletop role-playing games because they, the system itself can do a good job of it, but if you can also slowly stitch in the idea that maybe this is a different, maybe it is, maybe it's an urban fantasy setting where there is no difference until it falls away. Or there's just a huge difference in, you know, eclipse phase where there is now transmedia or, uh, transhuman futures where you can shift bodies that's a huge novum right there that just run wild there's a lot of science fiction and speculative fiction if you apply the rules of science fiction studies outward are very useful and help creating contained living worlds that are still wild and imaginative for co-creation mm-hmm. also played a lot of video games <laughs> <laughs> and and made video games too. Yes, uh I w- my undergrad was in mechanical engineering. Um specifically, I was not actually anything related to digital media or anything. I was an undergraduate mechanical engineer focusing on product development and uh, design. I had a job at a uh porous plastic company. I did a lot of coding for there. And basically on the side is where I did a lot of this work. 
just mm-hmm. stitching in because it was something I desperately wanted to do, desperately mm-hmm. needed to do as an outlet. And then you're able to turn that from something on the side to make it just your full time. Yeah. Um, once I graduated, stuff happened. I won't get into the nitty gritty details, but I was homeless for a year and a half and Lisa vouched for me and I got my master's degree or I got into my master's degree program. And that's where I met Janet. Um, I'd known about Janet for forever because she is vital to the digital media. And during that time of homelessness is where I started playing a lot more tabletop role-playing games, getting a little bit more understanding of them, built a setting, um, my young adult Lovecraftian setting that is three systems that all ask the question of what do you do when you realize you have no purpose and how do you define it with a larger campaign across multiple sets systems question of what do you do when you realize the apex predator of an ecosystem has disappeared and you are able to bring it back um i only got to run the first system uh the first system of that setting and i almost use it as my master's degree but you know people having anxiety attacks and depression and panic attacks playing a horror game is probably not going to be irb safe for research. So I had to switch to my thesis. Mayhaps. Yep. <coughs> Mayhaps. But um, made it through that master's work and then you did some research work in Portland? Yes. Um the the idea the the, the linearity of master's degree was not actually that linear. I came in wanting to do vision systems, uh specifically IR cameras. I ended up making a educational tool for museums to teach kids computational, uh, teach them coding and music composition. Um, And with that, I, that should have been my standalone project. But again, my side hustle of uh, tabletop role-playing games decided to become my main hustle. I did a project and a thesis essentially, but my thesis is where I met my wife. Um, when I was running summer camp uh, with Crazon, a friend of the show, and a couple of other individuals, uh, I met my wife at the time. And the joke is I'm the most expensive uh, thing she's ever bought. So met her, and after I finished my master's degree, I went and moved in with her. And I struggled mightily. Uh, undiagnosed ADHD, a lot of personal stuff. But she knew the applied linguistics professors at Portland State University where she was going for Japanese. So I joined in and uh, every Friday or so, I would routinely go to meetings and watch them talk about linguistic mastery using one of their projects where they would record uh, first English as a second language and English and then native first language individuals talk and see how they would interact looking at the mastery, how they would allow for the movement of language and wrongness in a conversation to try and focus on a science fiction walking tour that was created purely for the sake of engendering conversation. Um, A lot of what I did, though, is study it going, hey, this is a lot of interaction design that you're missing here because it's a lot of theatrics there's a lot of slight shiftings of position there's a lot of slight power dynamics 
there's a lot of these videos that aren't, and even in the setting itself of your game that you've made for your research, there's a little small interactive experiences that you're missing for the sake of linguistics. Let me point those out to you. And from there, I moved up a bit to the faculty meetings for a local project and just acted as a digital advisor for a bit until Hellscape, uh, uh, Hellscape service industry called after I hit a massive mental health wall and I wasn't able to work there anymore. Uh, during that time, I did start making some VR games, some VR pucks for tabletop role-playing games. Um, such that you could use your phone to see a 3D model of a thing, but that never worked out. Mm-hmm. And just over that last two years, kind of figured out what I wanted, played more games, especially with you guys. You all started uh, becoming a bigger part of my experiences and kind of worked with Ugly Talks with Matt Campen, started doing some research design there and kind of honing my skills into what I wanted. Did I want to do this linguistic stuff? Did I want to do these interactions? Did I want to do this visual component? What did I want to do? And I went back to my roots of, I want stories that help people understand themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I need to inform what that means. Um, So again, this is about my family. Um, about me turning homeless. I was playing in a game as I graduated. I was in my master's program for applied engineering, and we were playing a game modeled off of the Persona game. It was Dream Persona. Everyone was allowed a kid, and monsters and other childish things. Everyone was allowed a kid and a monster, and the monster was a representation of some internal issues. Uh, somebody was a teen pregnant. Someone was a uh, leftist that wanted to be authoritarian because he didn't like, didn't think anybody could do could control things as well as he could. Uh, there was what appeared to be a closeted girl who was just better at masking and not understanding. So she had a monster that was a stage musician, and I played a young, confused boy with a living riot in his head. Uh, to represent kind of the fact that he was being pulled in a thousand directions. And I modeled it, uh, I modeled the family because it is much like Persona based off relationships. My family, I modeled his family after mine. And that is one of the biggest reasons I was able to realize and flee my family is about 20, 30 sessions in after correcting people trying to appropriately create a family dynamic that I was used to, I actually had the GM and a couple of the others pull me aside and go, this is, you should go talk to somebody about your family. Mm-hmm. Um, very soon after that, a big event happened, but I equate my freedom and safety and ability to be who I am now from tabletop role-playing games and helping me figure out the mere briefest of the top of the iceberg of what my family has put me in the generations of my very family through. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I decided I wanted to go to. That's what a lot of my work deals with. That's what I want a lot of tabletops to be recognized as this place where equal individuals can sit down and have a discussion in a safe space to run around, explore convoluted topics maybe make the wrong answers and fail and then have a discussion afterward, during, before 
to open the door for more conversations and more understandings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's one of the things I've been so grateful for this community. And like some of the things like I, in some ways I almost can't understand. Like I've heard a lot about the greater role-playing game community, like as a whole, like as a industry and like heard a lot of the nasty, awful things that people have done and said and are, and just the community that we have founded together and that we're all kind of a part of in a more localized sense, just that we've had these kind of spaces. Like it's been very grateful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Same here. It's, uh, one of the most valuable communities I've I'm I'm a part of. Uh, to me, yeah, and I say that and- as a religious person, <laughs> which probably <laughs> says a lot about religion in 2021 America. And, and that is why I so adamantly fight against the concepts of tabletop role playing games, mm-hmm. as I've seen in academia and digital media, is they are forefronted by those major industries. I often describe D&D as the Disney of tabletop role-playing games, mm-hmm. monopolistic and monolithic in the controlling flow of what it is. And right. my job like is were... to break it open a bit. Right. Well, yeah. you were talking about using D&D as like in a therapeutic sense. And like, even as you were speaking of it, I was, I was thinking like, well, wouldn't like monsters and other childish things or little fears or no thank you evil be like a better game to model what they're looking for? Oh, you chose two of the ones that I routinely <laughs> use. Monsters <laughs> and other childish things and uh, little fears are actually going to be part of my dissertation as representations of transgressive narratives that allow for communication versus action. Soft action versus the hard action of more violent or more more f- focused combat games. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, give like a brief overview of both those games? Cause for the people who don't know, cause I know that my mom is now listening to these interview episodes after I told her I'm doing <laughs> them. So sure. I now need to uh, have more explanations for her. Little... We've done, we've done Malked here on the podcast, but we haven't done mm-hmm. little fears yet. And they, oh. they do similar things, but also not, you know what I mean? Oh, don't tell yeah. me you haven't played little fears on here. I might have to run a couple of my dozen <laughs> games. Um, uh, I haven't yes. played it yet, but, uh, RPPR's, uh, Pol- uh, Polybius. Polybius was like one of the first APs I've ever heard and is one of my most cherished APs. So I may not have played it, but it means a lot. <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I read your kind of uh, discussion of it in one of your published uh, works. I think it was the new weird the new weird article you wrote. Um, yeah. and I yeah, I really want to play it. Like it sounds like a great game. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those that don't know, Monsters of the Childish Things is essentially Calvin and Hobbes meets Call of Cthulhu. You play a child. And you have an imaginary friend, except your imaginary friend isn't imaginary, and he is a monster beyond time and space. Um, For sake of time, that is one of the base ways to play it. You can also play it where you are a half-monster, a la X-Men, a weird kids. Um, There is another setting in which the monsters aren't all-powerful, but running the base system makes the game not about conflict because the monsters solve all conflict by themselves um any monster on mundane results in the monster winning and only the monster the monster only listens to their child 
but the, the monster loves their child but doesn't understand humanity. And traditionally, the games typically run as monster combat, giant kaiju that destroy the world through control of immature children, usually, usually underage. However, thanks to Matt Campen and his designs, he usually talks about making the game about consequences, i.e. the child needs to pass a test while the monster takes on the form of the teacher and gives an A. What happens to that? Why doesn't it? And by the end of the experience and what it's supposed to elicit and engender in the individuals is the sense of responsibility and of power and how to take responsibility for your own actions and not rely on the easy or maybe overtly, uh, for lack of a better term, atomic solutions that might be at hand and having to deal with juggling that responsibility versus that ability to have that power. Um, Little Fear's Nightmare Edition is the more commonly played edition. Uh, Little Fear's Nightmare Edition is built on the premise that you are children of age 13 or less, and the core novum, I guess, of this experience is belief. The idea that if you believe in yourself, it can become real. The idea that your shoes are sticky so you can actually climb wall. Yet there's a perversion of belief. I'm just going to basically read what i wrote in this chapter because i had to explain (laughs) little fears as well i explain yeah little fears with the specific anyways there's a perversion of belief called terror i.e if you believe that something is bad it's going to happen it instills them with terror or if you're scared of something it instills them with terror and if you believe that there's a monster under your bed there's actually a monster under your bed exactly and what ends up happening is there this Little Fears has a multitude of solutions that aren't available in other games. The monsters have HP, which means that you kill the HP and they come back later, TM. There's terror, which is actually the thing that makes the monster live. But in destroying the terror destroys the monster completely, but it takes forever. You can appease the monster by giving it what it wants. You can also make it your friend, a la monsters and other childish things. And then you can also use rituals or other types of weaknesses to uh, curtail and kowtow it into a certain location for others. What ends up happening is that instead of just the usual fight monster, kill it, or social monster, befriend it, you have a vast spectrum of interactions to go with, which is even more bolstered if you think of the idea of belief changes a thing. Not only is there a monster under your bed, but it could also be that you're scared of going to the dentist, and the dentist turns into the dentist from, uh... Little Shop? Uh, turns into the dentist from... The Cenobite oh, Dentist? No, I'm... Little Shop of Horrors. Mm-hmm. Just more and more monstrous, you know, he might start as a regular person, and then as you get more scared, he becomes, like, the dentist from Little Shop of Horrors. And then as he goes more, he becomes a Cenobite. And that terror suffuses him and makes him a monstrous creature. But as you deal with the terror, he comes back to being your dentist. And you have addressed your fears now in a way that allows you to move further beyond it to address the next problem. This also applies to societal fear. This is an aspect of the old little fears that I wish would come back. The idea that societal ghosts and societal misdeeds can be believed enough to cause terror and make them into these specters. This is a kind of retelling of a book that I adore that I won't share right now, 
but it's the idea that ghost stories, urban legends, and all of these things aren't actually supernatural, but are natural entities, no natural responses, almost pearls of tragedy that have been wrapped up based off a social injustice that has been retold and covered in the mucus of lies, retelling, and societal assuagement to create these weird little ideas to figure out. And yeah, like, and it's all, like a really poignant, uh, pathos laden game, like, especially from like the description and, and, you know, it, it mirrors the story with the gameplay where, uh, similar to kind of my other favorite game, Knights Black Agents, where like, you have to understand what the monster is to be able to, to solve the problem associated with it. And that, that's what growing up as like a growing up is, is, uh, learning um about the 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 terrors and the um the wonders of of life and uh kind of understanding them more exactly and then like once you understand them you have the power to affect them yeah and like knights black agent is a great example because i have never played it i have listened to a couple of the tribes of tokyo game it does a good Mm -hmm. job of showing the horrific aspect of belief and shows how the the from the framing systems of tabletop are vastly different but elicit different responses you can run that game in little fears if you want it's going to be weird because you got to change a little bit of it but the same core concept of understanding the monster to defeat it can work but because of the nature of being a fear itself resource-based game it adds this level of tension and ticking clock that has to mm-hmm. uh, end tribe to tokyo that helps lend itself to this idea of you need to weather the storm and make decisive strikes to borrow caleb's ideas of like i'm gonna spend 45 points on this thing and i'm gonna make sure it doesn't lose <laughs> yeah i'm gonna there, detonate a parking garage on top of it <laughs> yeah exactly and, and and this is where the power of this this is the idea of procedural rhetoric. This is idea of Bogos and this idea of Janet. The idea that the rule set help explain and create the new experience. Because mm-hmm. you know you can run Knights Black Agent and Little Fears, except now the power of belief is the focus and the randomness and the explosive dice makes it even more horrific. You right. could run it in. Um, one of the powered by apocalypse games and it becomes more of a social dynamic and it has to deal with trying to figure out how to navigate these crits and these messy entanglements that happen. Like there's a lot of ways to strip the narrative from a system and then package it in a, another framework mechanic that vastly alters the narrative in a way that is really interesting but also hard to describe outside of mm-hmm. tabletop well it's also um I, I like because i uh i again from it sounds like a lot what of what uh janet murray uh talks about where it, like her interest is really more in like the nature of narrative and how to like how it can in this like uh in this kind of digital interactive uh medium or even in like the analog of how to like they're different mediums so like what are the the conventions and the boundaries um in in order to be able to to tell a affecting story um and so like yeah in in the case of like changing rule systems you're ju- you're just kind of like uh refining whatever aspects of like say the exa- the tale of knights black agents um, whether it's like belief or your ability to like, you're up, uh, 
you're the underdog and you're uh learning you have to like figure out the 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 um weak point the achilles heel of your like overpowering enemy to be able to defeat them uh uh precisely and effectively so yeah yeah, and, and you mentioning of Janet's looking at the boundaries is where, again, I keep hinting about my dissertation topic. Now I'll actually talk about it. Uh, <laughs> my study is on transgression and games. Uh, the working phrase that I have now, I have my orals, which is what I, oral presentation of my research, which will then lead to my proposal sometime next year, is the concept of uh the narrative in which the individual finds themselves recognizing they are part of a larger system and must contend with the personhood and agency that is allotted to being a part of a larger system especially when the system can talk back this is of course based off uh bioshock's ludo narrative dissonance spec ops the line <laughs> and undertale near series uh, the pathologic series. There's a lot that this does in digital spaces because digital is designed around these hard procedural rules of how to play a game. So when you break them, people are amazed. However, that is almost baseline in tabletops because there is a constant, uh, there is a constant transgressiveness of you are your character. No, you are your player. They are a separate entity that can bleed you are in an experience no you're experiencing experience there's a lot of bleed that happens and that transgression is important to understand because it allows for to go back to to science fiction it allows for you to understand the internalized rules of the world of your experience and then figure out almost like jojo's bizarre adventures how to work around limitations to mm -hmm. bend the bow to actually get to a deeper level whether that's like rolling a critical success to get like an, a much better version of events that could possibly happen or like uh, games that have systems that allow you to change roles like like Will in Red Markets or Moxie in Eclipse Phase. Or yeah. like effective uh, point spending and, and gumshoe games like Knights Black Agents. Uh, my favorite use of this is actually Little Fears, because I've had people have issues with the explosive dice of it, and we cap dice. And due to the power of belief and ritual, I allow my players to completely destroy the rules. So there is a explosion rule where you can give the entire world explosion dice bags, or you can keep them yourselves, or you can decide that the system is now a D10. There's this is the idea of again if everyone is co-collaborative and everyone is a GM and everyone understands the system enough you understand the rules enough to bend them to create new narratives. So understanding a mm -hmm. D6 might be something that you don't particularly like to play with, or it might be a little too whatever. Well, let's roll a D100 and have it be an exploding <laughs> system. Now we're really in a high danger society. Yeah. Or you know we're gonna do this such that another inherent nature of the experience uh you can't believe in anybody anymore we're gonna cap it so that you can believe in yourself but that means that since you can't believe in others there's no more scare power that goes out to the monsters there's a lot of give and take to these rules that become a yes and experience mm -hmm. or it can even come and charge in like 
um, power gaming, like what Ethan did with Nasit in um, Into the Black. Like he can't essentially fail computer rolls because his stats were so high, <laughs> but anything else, he's kind of SOL. Mm. And and that's again power gaming and munchkinning are concepts that I will have to address eventually. But the idea of is. Your if your narrative can be broken by munchkins and power games, you need to break things. And I also think, um, like another another issue to be able to like maintain that relationship is to have like a healthy relationship with everyone involved, which you know we like hinted at earlier. Um, that like, yeah, there are some really nasty, toxic uh, parts of our community, and I think that uh, comes a part of it when you uh, when it say someone like a GM where, or where there's like, because you're the narrator of the world, there's like a clear power dynamic um, between them and the players. And if they exploit that or, and, and violate those boundaries, it, it gets real nasty, uh, which is why those are bad. And uh, if you're, you should not do those things no. in, a, in a role-playing no, game. No, 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 no. Yeah. The, the, there is part of that issue that comes from D&D's war games, the writings of the original authors. I have two books by Gary Gygax after he left uh, D&D that kind of inscribed that idea that the entirety of a tabletop game is based on the shoulders of the DM. And as such, all should be subservient to the DM, including the narrative. <laughs> that is from the foundations of the medium, and as such, that is what has influenced how people view it and run it. And that needs to change, because it should no longer be a monolithic individual, much like I was suggesting. It's a raising up of everybody to be equal. Again, this right. is much more complex in my chapter. I probably should have sent it to you guys, but I was too busy doing schoolwork. <laughs> it's fine. It's all good. Bye. It's all good. But yeah, like from from my, like my perspective as like a sports fan, like and uh, Janet and other people's works in like more physical media, like there's ways that people can manipulate the narrative in other gaming systems, but it's not a whole one-to-one thing because it's a group narrative versus individualistic effort. Like I can think of like people breaking video games by speed running and using, uh, um, using tricks and tools and stuff or in sports, like the Astros ruining everything by banging on trash cans to steal signals. Uh, it doesn't have the same impact in a narrative sense, but it's, it's that manipulation of what you can do to affect the gameplay. And those are shifts in narrative focus that the a table, excuse me, speed running is very interesting because there's a lot of talk. There's the, is it live? And is it aura are two phrases that uh, will haunt me forever. Um, these are two digital media terms. Liveness is the act of being live. And can a tweet be live? Can a pre-recording be live? And can a digital reproduction be ever viewed as live even through Twitch? It's the kind of conceptualization that liveness deals with. I don't deal with Oslander. He's at Georgia Tech. That's not a reading that's particularly interesting to me. The other is a much older concept from World War II called aura. It is the idea that due to mechanical reproductions, 
the aura of an object has changed and the original creator intent of like a sculpture or a painting is lost due to the reproduction. And a lot of some of the more philosophical sides of digital media deal with reclaiming of aura and can reproductions have aura ever? My answer Mm -hmm. is traditionally the aura of the creator once reproduced may never return, but the aura of the individual experiencing the reproduction creates in it a new aura that is not the intention of the original creator, but is something wholly unique to the individual. And that's that a big part of games. Yes. Well. And that's probably a weird nitpicky thing, but that's where my head's at because I have to do a lot of weird things to toss these into no, conversation. I, I wouldn't think so because it's like, yeah, it's it's like how a lot of society has reclaimed Lovecraftian content from Lovecraft because Lovecraft is a monster who just oh, this is forgotten. a Qualls question I just answered yeah. on Thursday. <laughs> Literally, my but, my bespoke list wow. is about answering this question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not plan this, <laughs> but but I mean it, the reclamation of what his work means to people from the fact that he is an utter monster who deserves to be forgotten by society. Yeah, yeah. I think the answer that I gave is: if you're interested in science fiction study, there's a book called "The Seven Beauties of Science Fiction" by Istvan Cicere René Jr. And it dissects the seven elements of a science fiction story, but with the caveat that not all that all almost all fiction will ha- might have these elements, but a science fiction story will have four to seven. Of those, there are two concepts in there that part of my essay result of my my essay was that science uh, are the idea of the technology i'm awful about phrasing that and the science fiction sublime the science fiction sublime is the awe and inspiration that comes from a science fiction novum changing the world and the techno technology is the idea of social commentary stitched into a science fiction experience that people can resonate and learn from what i talked about is like the question was how do we remediate that's not the exact question but whatever lovecraft so it can be adaptable into digital artifacts without instilling his racist bigoted past and long story short it's the idea of expanding the technology to the idea of including not just the racists but the outsiders the people who were demonized but drawn to lovecraft's monsters and hybrids and ghouls and you know the fish people that revealed they were fish people expanding that to have them included in the conversation as well as including the sublime of i am no longer human this is amazing escaping from the focus of you know cis white males as the head of it and recognizing that sometimes the outsider draws comfort at being the outsider it lets them escape into a new world that is more comforting and less demonizing um specifically i draw on the fact that to do this you can look at delta green the system um i took i draw a line between call of cthulhu to delta green how call of cthulhu as a replication of old-fashioned delta green is instilled with a lot of the issues of racist caricatures poor mental health Mm -hmm. representation 
and general kind of a CD design that while you can pick apart has some, if you use the setting issues, Delta green continues this issue by being a pure, pure, a pure pie of mucky messiness Mm -hmm. to the point that has been, you know, call, even if it is satire, I've seen it been called cap, uh, conservative propaganda. So what I, my, my ended up discussing in this is the idea of the stress mechanic as the shining hope for how you redress Lovecraft. And the idea is to extract the stress mechanic out of Delta green and then place the entire game into a system or a setting a la a closeted individual in the middle of Kansas or a group of closeted individuals or a sports team with a closet of individuals having to survive the shitty nature of high school. And from there you have the stress mechanic that showcases the individual stress of having to live in this awful society, but you can't rely on just having the closeted individuals as a character or as part of the story you have to also show everyone the cis the bigots the racists you have to show how awful the world is so people can understand it and start to have a conversation about it and also uh especially uh going back to kind of the the lovecraftian view of the universe where like we are but small things um and you know it's only a matter of time before the asteroid comes and takes us out like the dinosaurs and the trilobites um that means that like we're the like the only thing that like i guess matters to us in the long view is like we're all that we have um so we need to you know we need to like form that community and um band you know kind of band together but Glovecraft took a lot of Nietzsche's and the nihilistic perspectives of and that's essentialism. Not, uh, it, it, yeah, and that's it. also like not Lovecraft. That's like more of the the more modern like weird fiction stuff that I think that is, is the new you know, weird, which is yeah. the idea that you know they they adamantly push back against Lovecraft's straw nihilism, which is not even representative of the true nihilism of the era that he was in, <laughs> right, and. Yeah. What ended up happening is by pushing back and saying, no, Lovecraft here, they created a filter that ended up pooling into what I call neo-Lovecraftian horror because it allowed all those outsider voices a place to sit and grow and share. Ballad of mm-hmm. Velvet Bow, which is amazing. Ballad of Black Tom, Lovecraft Country, A Cosmology of Monsters. There's a bunch of these that are out there and they're seeping Annihilation. Through. Annihilation, though... The the Vendemir might bound. fight you on that. Um, yeah, I mean, like I know because certainly I um because I've done a fair amount of weird fiction stuff. Um, I know for like me, one is like one that also like helps to like decentralize Lovecraft and his work is that like realizing that he's working in a tradition of writers and that like you know he's not necessarily even that unique once you kind of look at the whole <laughs> history of the genre um yeah. so yeah yeah he's not also, unique he's just the most famous yeah Correct. <laughs> and also all his works are public domain so it's free to to take yeah, yeah, them yeah. <laughs> but um again to like the, the idea of the weird and this transgression and this shift of focus, uh, I know specifically outside of Suvin, Cicero Rene Jr., there are three theorists that I actually base my work very highly on, um, one of which is actually influential to Suvin's metamorphosis. Uh, it's Brecht, 
Braska and Sicart. Excuse me. Berthold Brecht is who created the concept of Chinese theater or epic theater. It's literally the audience member is vital to the narrative experience. You go and you sit and you watch a play and then the light shifts to you and you have to choose things. Oftentimes with the audience sitting on stage, um, just making them an active participant in an interactive, in a a traditionally non-interactive experience, forcing them to interact, which is part of the idea of transgression of Traditionally, there is an internalized view of a system and how you play it. And when you transgress that and you are forced to interact, how do you model that such that it is safe to explore? Um, the other one is Frasca's Video Games of the Oppressed, which is very similar to Bawal's Theater of the Oppressed. It's the idea of using video games to help showcase oppression and help spread the word of how to give voice to individuals who might not have it. Mm-hmm. And the biggest one for me is the idea of Miguel Sicard's play. Miguel, uh, this is from Play Matters. This is a book from 2017. The book is part of a long tradition on what is play. Uh, Much like everything else I've talked about, I had to share this in my quals. So sit back, (laughs) relax, and let me explain everything. Um, Play. The concept of play starts with Hoytzinger. Um, who talks about the magic circle and homo ludens and the idea that play is vital to culture, thus our games are vital to culture, thus play is vital to culture. That is kind of the groundwork for uh, game studies. Uh, Kaloy is the next that talks about this. He talks about there are a taxonomy of play that can be combined into types of play, but these are still play. And those create game of those create game studies, which has unfortunately led to gamification, ludic fish narratives, ludo narrative dissonance discussions, and all of this stuff. There are two more: Michael Sutton Smith, who sees play as this naturalistic phenomenon that's vital to an organ that can be viewed as almost an evolutionary process. Play teaches and play builds a callus, essentially. The more more tabletops you play, the more intuitive it is to you to do it. The more you play a role-playing game, the more intuitive it is to you. The more shooters you play, the more off- the more you notice when a shooter feels good versus when it does bad. Um And he traditionally talks about how play can be dangerous, which is something that the previous two don't. What Sicart does is takes an anti-Heidegger, Heutzinger, excuse me, Heidegger is another person, anti-Heutzinger approach and sides closer to Sicart and that play itself can be dangerous. It doesn't have to be fun and it's carnivalesque in that it often mocks and makes fun of social structures as such mm-hmm. play is its own unique entity it's not games are play games are a type of play but not the only way to play theater becomes play tabletops are play running around and pretending you're a squirrel is play for specific reasons gambling is play and this is kind of the big question. This is the big division I talked about. Like gamification leads to addictive designs and Skinner boxes. According to the previous two works, those aren't games and those aren't play because there's risk that doesn't return to zero when it's done and gambling can never be play. But if you look at Sutton Smith and Sakart, gambling and 
bad faith arguments are core to play. Thus, you can learn how to recognize them, even if you probably shouldn't design for them. And so Sicart kind of allows for this, this separation of play, which is what I think is vital to tabletop versus games. Because you can power game still. That is a form of play. But somebody else munchkining is like a baker in the middle of the Black Death. That is a form of play as well. Somebody that just wants to go and experience it is a form of play. And as such, you now understand that there are three versions of play happening. One that might be a game. One that might be theater. One that might be interactive uh, experience and improv and the job of the GM now becomes how do I stick together these different these different forms of play into a cohesive experience mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it can be unfun for people it can be dangerous and it can fail but that is important exactly yeah um, it's an iterative process you gotta yes. take risks and and then you learn from those risks and those failures to to do better the next time. Yeah, and that that's definitely informed by Jack Halberstam's Queer to Failure, which to be quite simple, it's queer it's queer theory, but it basically says that there's no we should avoid the binary state of failure. Mm-hmm. Positive, negative. Instead, we could fail positively and pass negatively. Mm-hmm. That, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about like the fantasy flight uh, flash Genesis system for star Wars is having that dichotomy of success. You can have success and failure advantage and disadvantage and a critical success and a critical failure in the same role. And then how narratively do you adjudicate when you like fail a role? So your move doesn't work, but you still rolled a triumph. So something critically good happens to you. How do you adjudicate that at the table? That's much more, that gives much more narrative work, but narrative satisfaction when you pull it off. Exactly. And also it's just a good like example of uh, what it means to be a queer person. Because sure, you can pass, uh, but you know you can pass and stay in the closet. But that's not you know that has its own risks. And um, is it yeah, going to be coming out of the closet? It sure does. Yep. Yeah, and this is and that's why. Thank you. I include queer theory as one of the three foundational natures of my dissertation because queer mm-hmm. theory talks about on top of queer lives and representation it talks about how do you address and uplift outside voices back into a conversation Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the idea of queering traditional narrative experiences is basically what i'm doing it is transgressing the original design the best way i describe and how i've been able to describe it as a visual for individuals is i view dnd video games and the designs such as those as gilded cages you are trapped within a confined environment where you are allowed to explore and it might be pretty it might be safe but it is also confining and there is no creativity or freedom what i try to design when i run games and what i try to elicit in people when they play is the idea of a trellis the gm creates a trellis that the vines of the interactors grow up and in their own direction 
such that you have to adapt to them as they adapt to you becomes co-collaborative instead of this controlled experience, which means you can fail. And again, allowing for failure is an important aspect of all of existence. Yeah. It's literally making the dread gazebo. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to explain that to me. I've been out of the loop for a while. Um, There was a long form anecdote of a D and D game where, uh, a purse, they were in like a park or something or like a estate. And the GM explains that there's a gazebo in the field, you know, a, structure similar to a trellis where you know you can sit and appreciate flowers and stuff except nobody in the none of the players knew what a gazebo is in or out of character so they just assumed that was a monster in the manual they never heard of so they attacked the dread gazebo and the gm is like okay this is happening now i guess yeah the gazebo fights back now this i i think i've found my dissertation title yeah oh no Oh boy, Tara's but, Tara's t- uh, the tale of Tara and the dread gazebo. But then it 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 becomes this dichotomy of like you, this is now reality. Now this is what you have to do. And like I've also seen that happen with us and like the RPGs that we've played, where sometimes when mm-hmm. you don't have that one to one understanding, but the game still has to go on, the show must go on. So you have yeah. to make it work. And build that bridge together to make the game happen. I know for me, like uh, personally was in Monster Hearts 2 with uh, Seth and his family uh, where (laughs) I had a very idea of how my family was supposed to be. And Greg had a very different idea. And yeah, then I like rose to beat him and it was awesome. (laughs) Jason was a good boy. He was a good boy. I understand that. Yeah. And and that that, that meta come together is what happened with me. In my family, so I bottled my family. The GN tried to replicate it, and it got to a point of like, "Oh no, you need to talk to somebody." Yeah. So <laughs> that, like, that is the perfect encapsulation because I see both of those as successes. Hmm. One of them mm-hmm. is an in-game success where you have come together to figure out how to navigate this incredibly complex idea of family. The other one is a social, meta-textual success of, "Hey." We've talked about this. We need to talk about this outside of the game in a safe space to better you and let you understand. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of the beauty of role-playing games is that that's, that's really hard to find in outside systems. Like... Mm-hmm. Being a sports fan, like, yeah, when I'm at Ohio State and cheering on the Buckeyes, it's an experience, But like, and I share it with other people, but at times it feels like I'm just one person in a crowd of 100,000, and there's not that unity there anymore. Whereas yeah. the role-playing table, you know, it is direct interaction towards a specific goal, and even if... I'm cheering on a team. It's not the exact same thing as us working together to get the score done in red markets and get out alive and get back home. Well, and also like you're like the fan bickering and, and uh, discussions don't have any effect on what the sports team does. It's mm-hmm. you're just kind of an out, you're just kind of like talking, um, just talking with each other. 
Um, whereas like, and, and I think like also a big, a big part of like video games is I think like video games have, or certainly in like a lot of video games, especially like role-playing games. And, um, where like the, the whole promise is that like the, you're, it, it, your your in-game actions are gonna be the world will respond to your in-game actions and um you know you can the world shapes itself around you and obviously those are always over promises and and, and hype um but like it's you know in in role-playing games those are you actually that is actually the case yeah and it's very hard uh, my part of my research for this is finding situations that do what you're talking about of like give the promise of a sports game for instance or a sports game at the table we've talked about undertale and we've talked about bioshock and we've talked about those are all individual experiences but there's also wider fan-based experiences as well like that is a way of metatextual conversations that are only seen in fandom gatherings and understanding of the internalized logic like mm-hmm. i'm gonna mention homestuck here and everybody's gonna laugh at me but like homestuck is self-reflective because it's written to make fun of the very people that were reading it um the neon genesis evangelion mm-hmm. end of evangelion and the rebuilds if they stick the landing are yeah. all about this concept of they did oh i'm so happy um that's what that's what a, a review online told me was that they stuck the landing um i i have a literal article sitting here waiting talking about the concept of a rebuild that ava final fantasy 7 remake and homestuck help initialize it's the idea mm-hmm. of going through an experience and then watching that experience happen again but with contextual knowledge that as a fan, as a previous viewer, that it is now iterated into a new thing, potentially with a conversation to the higher stacking. Right. Mm-hmm. Like also stuff that's happening in real time. Like as a sports fan, me being upset with like Ohio State and the things that they have done to get to where they did last year or the things they're wallpapering over, it's like I'm shouting into a void. Whereas what's happening in uh, European soccer with the Super League, where the fans literally the fans, the smaller clubs, the entire world rose up in unison and is like, this is a dumb idea that is bad and you should stop. And it actually stopped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there are elements of this topic that I'm trying to write about everywhere. And and that is part of my job is just navigating this very, very thick path to give footing. Drop my phone. (laughs) yeah there's a lot that gaming can do that we have found and it's really good important research that you're doing we're eager to see it come to fruition uh so are there any weirder questions y'all have (laughs) because i cover a lot of stuff and i i am a black hole of media between me and my Mm -hmm. wife my lovely wife is basically my research assistant who will find a game or a film and be like, you have to read this and write about it. So like mm-hmm. I talked about dicey dungeons for God's sakes uh, on my quals topic as a representation of how to do games of chance that are purposely designed to fuck you over. Sorry for mm-hmm. cursing and how you can it's engender awesome. people to, to 
propagate through the bad feels, the purposeful bad feels to overcome them or just decide to leave because it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I have a question. Um, how do you like uh, bridge the gap in academia? Because you've mentioned that like academia has a very like mi- like at best very minimal or at least minimal established understanding of of tabletop role playing games. And I know like so I have an anecdote from my uh, last year in undergrad where we were doing like a uh, we were doing like an example of like uh, letter writing and kind of. Uh, uh, that kind of stuff. And like uh, one of the examples that one of the things I did was I brought in a, to for like a small group discussion. I brought in a, one of the handouts from the Artemage files to like as this example of this kind of like letter kind of artifact mm-hmm. um, that connects to this like bigger narrative or hints at a bigger narrative. And like most of my time talking was just explaining the concept of a handout in like role-playing games. <laughs> so like, how do you, so how do you bridge the gap for um, people who aren't as like died into the walls in this stuff as uh, we are? It is a challenge, but most people thanks to D and D have an understanding of the, of are interested at least of it. And so what I traditionally do to explain what tabletop is, is depends on who I'm talking to crafters and people who create quilts and like actually physical things out of cloth uh, traditionally, cause that's a big area where I'm in uh, traditionally pick it up and run. If not because they are dyed in the wool playing it traditionally as they're quilting. Um, the AIs are a little harder because the AI researchers, you have to talk about it in terms of theater and anticipation and the GM as an artificial intelligence trying to adapt to external issues. For narrative, you talk about it as a non-sequential, a multi-sequential experience of multitudinal interactions that dictate how the sequence plays out. It's a lot of linguistics, and I have had a lot of practice ling- linguistics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the simplest way to do it is uh, outside of context. Is what is tabletop role-playing games? It is a social gathering where a story is told through randomization mechanics. Mm-hmm. That is grotesquely simple, but that is where you can start talking about the subtypes, the narratives, the systems, because at its core, that's kind of what it is. It's just a social gathering where there is a designated randomization mechanic and something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, have Have you had a lot of interactions with academics who had just like, or people in your field who've just like new D and D exists. And now you're opening up like whole new worlds to them. My, uh, like, I, I, that's, that's how I got into everything. I just, <laughs> I knew D and D existed. That was it. I heard, I thought mask, the masquerade video games were an independent IP. <laughs> and now I'm playing journaling RPGs. That we share amongst ourselves. Like yeah. seeing that growth and just seeing this whole new world is probably also pretty helpful. It is really fun to break people's brains like that. Um, example, there is a... I was part of the research on it, but we had to scrub my data. Before I came back from my PhD, we did an interview with GMs about their history, their experience, and their knowledge of tarot. 
and going through mm. the information, D&D is the dominant nature by which people in this area, because it is, of course, through a technical school and things, interact. So it was really funny to go back through my pre-transition, pre-ADHD, pre-marriage interview, even if it was getting thrown out, and see how heavily I talked about Delta Green and all of these systems that people didn't understand and had to explain. I talk about Little Fears because it's my favorite one. My chapter that I just wrote, I had to be very careful because I was like, I need to talk about tabletops as a way to break free of capitalistic control of transmedia. I cannot do Dungeons and Dragons. I need to do this. And people are like, what is that? And I'm like, cool. Let me explain to you what Little Fears is. Or, you know, there's a lot of when I find people who aren't dyed in the wool or only know D&D, I like to talk about a bunch of stuff. And it blows their mind that what can be done. And it also reveals, how do I phrase it? If you know, if you found somebody who is a dyed in the wool D&D individual, it is very hard to get them to change. They view indie and any other interactions with the medium as a fun one-off that is merely there to make you want D&D more. Um, Or that you can incorporate into D&D. Yeah, it is a way, like... We, you can play a game of uh, foxes and NASCARs. I don't know if that's what it's actually called anymore. Um, and what that does is help train you as a GM that you can handle the unknowableness of a player and helps you train you better to be good at randomization and dealing with random stuff. It's never for the glory of the own experience. And in fact, it's like, I do this, but I don't like them because of randomization. And it shows, and I hate typecasting, but it even shows in how they interact and run these games. I have a, this might have to be cut, I don't know, I'll leave it up to you. I played in a game of Lasers and Feelings a couple of, last semester, I think. And it was a good explanation, it was a good symbolic representation of the Gilded Cage versus the Trellis, the Demon Gazebo, the Dread Gazebo, as it's going to be called forever now. Uh, <laughs> We were play. We were all space entities of the. For anybody that doesn't know, Laser Feelings models off of fifty Star Trek, and it's supposed to be pulpy and hand. Mm-hmm. Um, we were playing with a Chinese native who had never played role playing games before. So after a space jump between ships, we landed in the loading dock, or the 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 antechamber of the other ship and she went oh i'm reacting i'm having an allergic reaction and the gm running it not me at the time was went you can't do that that's not allowed you know tell us something else later and i i wrote that down because that is the best example i have of the gilded cage she could do whatever she wants but she couldn't make and i would very clearly explained afterwards to my advisor and to the individual that if I was playing the game, I would ask, ask, okay, you're having an allergic reaction. 
how respiratory skin Mm -hmm. psychic Mm -hmm. they were a psychic individual that is an important aspect of the experience that they can then stitch in that helps me create an experience both individualized to you and helps invite others to the encounter what happened there is the gate got closed and the story moved on and that is just what i'm trying to get people to understand is that you don't have to just tell the story you don't have to rely on the gm everybody at a table including the new players typically know what they want and have an exotic desire to it but the masquerade and the grandiose nature of gm makes them scared to do things and it's difficult i just purely want people to understand that they can go and punch the dread gazebo Mm -hmm. that's all they need to do yeah uh seize the means of uh, game mastering (laughs) (laughs) indeed i it it, it read yeah my chapter will read very communist manifesto (laughs) it was it it, it was based off an anarchist manifesto so you know (laughs) it's even better if you're interested in reading the book it's the emergent strategies by adrian marie brown black feminist um fantastic book i have no idea how to include it in my dissertation because i had to read it six times purely for the chapter much less a <laughs> dissertation it's super tough no i'm, I'm definitely going to have to include a bibliography in the show notes. yeah <laughs> that's i always i'll help after we're done recording this is my job i have them around <laughs> awesome uh well uh, it has been a delightful talk thank you so yeah, much yeah this was great yeah, anytime. How, uh, how can people find you? I am on Twitter, um, though I am taking a mental health break because the world is awful. It, it, it's it's Twitter. Yeah, it's fine. It's, Please, it's it's Twitter. Uh, so um, it is at juju underscore m u n s t e r. I routinely go by Wandering Scholar. Um, I do have an email of t. G A S Q U E at G A tech.edu. That is my school email and is probably the best setup. I also have a horrifically awful uh, portfolio website that I need to update, but I've been too lazy in dealing with personal matters. That is HTTPS T G A S Q U E dot M E. And I'm floating about the internet. I'm also, if technical difficulties, you guys know me. If somebody's got a question about this, just shoot it my way. Um, I'd love to start playing games again, but I don't think so, because my advisor is shooting me to try and finish my dissertation in four years. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> well, if you have time, or even just for a one-shot, one-night thing, hopefully we can get something going. Mm-hmm. All right, little fears. We can have some fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you very much again for joining us, and we thank you for listening. Good night, Good night. Bye.